According to the Journal of Neuroepidemiology, epilepsy affects more than 50 million people worldwide, with 80% of them living in low- and middle-income countries. These are countries where a condition like epilepsy can be wildly misunderstood and stigmatized in a way that can be isolating and burdensome for families and communities that are not fully educated. Today, I'm featuring Tigo Daniel Joyum, a neurotechnologist and social entrepreneur who grew up in the country of Cameroon. At a very young age, he learned that his brother was living with epilepsy. This is where his passion for neurodiagnostics was sparked. And after moving to the U.S., he began exploring what he wanted to pursue as a career. And of course, he was drawn back to the field of epilepsy. He now works to make sure that neurodiagnostic services and education are more accessible in countries like his own. Tigo's personal experiences with epilepsy in his family and how he's using his knowledge and passion to spread the word through his nonprofit is inspiring, to say the least. He's the co-founder of the Global Organization of Health Education and Purple Point Neurodiagnostic, a fair profit diagnostics company, to fulfill this mission. He has a master's in public health and is currently pursuing a doctorate from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This episode is the first of two parts highlighting Tigo's work on epilepsy and mental health awareness initiatives in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Make sure you're subscribed and follow so you don't miss part two. Thanks for being here. My name is Hethel Bauman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Tigo, good morning. It is six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And so I'm proud that like I actually got up. You were saying something. We were, this is like totally unrelated to the topic, but you know, we were talking about the stigma around how a lot of people think that, you know, if you're somebody that gets up early, uh, every morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, hits the gym, all of that, every single morning, then you're like, you're seemed or perceived to be this like, more productive person. And it's not always the case, you know, so we're just like chatting about that. So could you like share some of your insights? Yeah. Well, so I'll tell you this, my insight actually comes from the wisdom of the Messiah the Maasai in Kenya. So right. on a on a trip that we did in Kenya on just very recently, like a week ago, on uh, where we went and did the conference on neurodiagnostics, like the African Neurodiagnostics Society Conference, the very second one that we created in 2018, we went on a safari in the Maasai Mara region. <clears throat> and we had this very, very kind guy. So our guide was actually a Maasai guy. So we didn't just have this guys driving the truck who are from Nairobi, but actually a Maasai kid who grew up in the safari. He knows animals. He wow. grew up seeing the animals. He knows how to track the animals. And he was sharing something about sleep. And he, like we saw 
about two or three lions that were eating. And most of the time, the lions were sleeping. Mm -hmm. They were sleeping. And he also shared about the crocodile that spent most of the time sleeping. And those animals tend to live very, very long. Like the lion lives longer than the lioness. Like he eats and just sleep. And it's not that he's weak or not strong. He's very, very strong. And when it's time, he will kill very fast. But he's sleeping more. So I'm like, it made me reflect about, you know, this notion like, oh, you get up, you run, you sleep, you do this. I get up, I run, I try to do all these things. But, you know, is it what defines what it should be? Should you rest to keep your energy? to be more productive at the time you are? Or should you wake up and run and burn all your energy, like not really use it for what you need it? I don't know. Maybe a case for research. Yeah. I'm sure there is some research out there. But I know for like a really long time, I'd be like, you know, am I just not built for success you know like the the six most successful people out there they're like oh i get up at four o'clock in the morning and then i meditate for an hour and then i go run and then i do this and that and i'm like okay that's not (laughs) that is not happening (laughs) for me but i've noticed that my most productive times are actually like later on in the afternoon or like just scattered it throughout the day and I need to take more breaks. And wow. Okay. So that I just needed to talk about that because, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and this is an interview that I've been wanting to do. And I, we spoke a few years ago talking about your work in neuroscience and epilepsy. And I wanted to reconnect with you so that I can share with my audience what you've been up to. And then for anybody who hasn't heard your story, I want I want you to really go back and tell us about where your passions in epilepsy came from, where are you from? And yeah, so so what's your story, Tigo? Wow. Where do I start? So well I was born in a little village in Cameroon, in Banjun, Cameroon, Central West Africa. I usually say Cameroon is Africa in miniature. So our country, Cameroon, has all the cultures and climates of Africa. So you have like the tropical and then the desert, everything yeah. in in our little country. So I was born in Cameroon uh, many years ago and I grew up at home. And, you know, we I like to play a lot as a kid, get out and play in this, play soccer. That's one thing we played a lot. And, you know, I had a sibling who had a condition and he had epilepsy and he lived with epilepsy. You know, today the term has changed. We can't say someone has something. It's more stigmatizing uh, way of saying things. So we say a person living with epilepsy. So that's the new terminology to destigmatize conditions. So people with epilepsy, not person who. Has oh, that's actually interesting. Is that something that's come about just like in the past few years? Because this is actually the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah, that's the past few years, and that is the revision in the IGAP, the you know the international global 
work that the WHO is doing about epilepsy stigma condition. So just to put that term out there, yeah. you know, person living with epilepsy and we're just playing in the field and he fell and, you know, people ran and made fun. And it was just a time that struck me and it wasn't one time, you know, people would always run away. And even at home sometimes, like, oh, people would be like, don't stay close to him. You would have the condition or, you know, it was just, there was the stigma about it. People didn't know. And it was just hard for me. Like, why would someone, you know, live this way with the condition he has? I come to find out when I grew up that it's not contagious. And I'm like, no, you know. And you didn't know for a while that it wasn't contagious. No. Growing up, that's what we thought we kind of believed. And, you know, my mom would remind, my mom was, bless her soul, she was a nurse, so she knew and she would, you know, take care and give medication. But we believe more what everyone in the area kind of believes. In the society says, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's still a big thing. The stigma is still huge in this part of the world. So, you know, fast forward, I mean, it was the... Some conditions of this, like kids have it maybe till they're teenagers and it goes away, which was less the the case of my brother. So it doesn't last to, for ages. Some people have and grow with it and have it forever. And, right. I, you know, I really pray for those who have it. And some actually die with what we call death, you know, sudden unexpected death due to epilepsy, where someone would fall of an epileptic attack and fall in a fire and die. Right. So there's different different people with different type of disconditions. And my brother was one of those that like ended. But the moment and those moments growing up just made me like, I don't like to see this. I, I want people to know more about it. I want those who need care to have it. And, you know, the the burden of this condition is... 80% of them are in lower and middle income countries where I come from. And we're talking about, we used to say, I mean, even the WHO need to actually update their numbers yeah. because the WHO's document mentioned about 65 million people, which at the time when the research was made was 1% of the world's population, which was 6 billion at the time. But now that we are 8 billion, the numbers need to be updated and that 1% would be now about 80 million people. So those are just wow. some technical things that, you know, after going to school, I'm learning and I'm trying to communicate for these numbers to be updated simply because, I mean, it needs, it takes time and resources to actually make the data research, but right. we can use simple calculation to approximate the numbers. You said that 80% of people with epilepsy are in low and middle income countries. Why is that the case? Is that just because they don't have like the medicines or things of that nature? I would like it's hard to really it's hard to really say why, right? Because yeah. how will I put it? It's not that those countries have something that makes it more again Prevalent, some of yeah. Yeah, it's just that the if we look at most conditions, right, a lot of those conditions are in countries where, you know, 
some are some are related to like different condition like brain trauma are some things that may cause someone to have oh i see birth right very very poor managed birth can lead kids to have to develop epilepsy because you know if the kid is born in a poor condition where they don't breathe in those first moments where they're being born right no oxygen to the brain could lead to those right so it's more i think I, I, there's no research for it, but for my analysis, it's just the social determinant of health in those in those areas for the child or the kids at birth. Having all those difficult conditions could lead to just the brain being not well developed or trigger seizures. That, that's just my way of kind of looking at an explanation to it. But again, you know, more research needs to be done, which a lot of research is not done in these regions because there's not enough attention or funding for these conditions in these countries. So, I mean, you you talked a little bit about the stigma. So how else does it affect, you know, the people who live with epilepsy, say in a country like Cameroon? How does this affect their education level or things like that? So I'll take a story, right? It is a hypothetical story. Let's imagine little Aminata in a little village of Cameroon who lives with epilepsy in the village. First, in her village, people think those who have epilepsy are possessed by demon or were cursed. So mom actually most of the time hides her in the house because she's afraid She's going to fall and people will see. So she doesn't want a lot of people to actually know about the condition of her kid. And mom is always with her because mom is afraid she can fall in a fire and burn herself. Mom takes her almost everywhere, even if she's a farmer. When she takes her to the farm, she's very close to her. So her productivity of mom, who is maybe the breadwinner in the family, is reduced. The opportunities that little Aminata could have had as a kid is reduced because she's hidden. She doesn't play with other friends because mom is afraid she's going to fall and people run, run away. And they're going to talk about this family. And some family are even so afraid that maybe people will say, oh, don't get married in that family because Mm. that family has the gene of people living with epilepsy. So it's, that's just, just giving you a little glimpse of, what the stigma does in terms of quality of life, economic for people with epilepsy and for that village, right? You're reducing the productivity of a person who could contribute to taxes in that village. Because some people will say, well, there's no taxation structure in these villages. Yes, there are. When she produces corn or beans and she sells in the market, when she sells in the market and maybe, you know, buy something that is tax, right? She's paying taxes because she's buying products that are in a store that are taxed. Even if her production in the farm is not taxed, she ends up buying products or things in that village that has taken some money from taxation. So it affects not only the people, it affects not only that child, but it affects the whole economic system when we look at it from the helicopter view. 
Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Not even to say the mental health of the child, too. Huge. And you don't limit yourself to the mental health of the child just because of the deterioration of, because what is epilepsy, what is an attack, uh, uncontrollable activities, right? Uncontrolled electrical activity in the brain, firing, 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 damaging the brain cells, damaging, you know, those part of the brain structurally that leads to mental health on its own. Wow. The stigma creating mental health condition and that on its own, just the condition behind, right? And the mental health now on the parent or the close family members. So there's a ripple effect on that mental health from that one condition. And and that's why, I, I, you know, being in global health, in mental health or in public health now, I I don't understand how government don't see the magnitude of non-communicable disease. They don't just see, they want the numbers. Oh, it's only 80 million people. Why should we care? Only. (laughs) Right? How many family members does this 80 million people have? Let's take one person in a village with a condition like epilepsy. How many people are connected to that one person? A minimum of three. Like if you want to be very minimum. Yeah. Two parents that made that kid and then one neighbor. That's already three people. Yeah. But that's on average. So those numbers I gave, you have to multiply that by three to really see the people affected by that condition. So your brother, he grew out of living with epilepsy. Were you still in Cameroon at that time when he recovered from the condition? How did society view that? You know, were they like, oh, he's not cursed anymore? What was that like when he realized, oh, I don't, I don't have these, these episodes anymore. Episodes, yeah. It, it, even to me, when I reflect, you know, when was I, I would say I was maybe 13 years old when it all went away and, and we never heard about it. So over time, it kind of just faded. And since we, you know, my mom and family, we have really kept it very close. Right. So it it was easier for him because we kept it very, I mean, we have to hide it. We wouldn't tell this to people. Like it's today that, like if it's recently that I actually started like vocally saying, I got to know about this condition because of my sibling. And you know, how do people? So you've like started talking about that, and I mean, like, how is that like perceived? Like, even like from back, like people that 
you used to grow up with and things like that. What's that like? No, it 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 was a it was a scary thing even for me. You know, I believe that that the the saliva of a person with that condition will make you have it. We were made sure not to look at him when he's falling in this. We had to run away when it happens. So even my mom being a nurse who knew and would take care of him and give him meds and whatnot when attacks happen, we still were scared mm. and afraid of it. And I mean, I know other people who are close to the family who, you know, maybe one other person that I knew who had it and have not outgrown because his condition is a permanent, uh, the condition he lives with is more a, you know, a permanent one that he grew through with it. It took time for people to actually continue to approach and, you know, be close to them. Okay. So you left Cameroon, you came to the States. I can only imagine you came here like with a goal what was your North Star at that time? So when I left Cameroon to here, I mean, I finished my, you know, I was in undergrad, almost completing my bachelor's in biochemistry. And my grandfather was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. So I already, I was unconsciously like knew. Going you that would, path, yeah. You would be a doctor. And, you know, I didn't really know what, particularly I wanted to do. But when I moved here and I, you know, fast forward when I made myself into University of Colorado, where I worked for almost 12 years, I was trying to see what am I going to do in like my healthcare career. I didn't want to go to med school because it was just too complicated, too complex to get in. I'm like, okay, I need to do something that First is something I love. Mm. And I saw some technician that were doing EEG. And I was like, what is this? They're like, this is EEG. And it's for epilepsy. I'm like, this is my call. This is, this is it. This is what I was born for. To learn this and understand this and demystify it around the world. This, this is it. This is it. And... It's been, what, 15 years? I haven't turned around from it. It's what I did. I learned it, you know, did my training certification in neurophysiology, finished another bachelor in that, and moved on to take all the possible certifications that you can need for neurophysiology and and surgery. Like, okay, I learned how to do just basic diagnostic of someone with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. First, what do you do? First, EEG, phase one, learn how to do phase two. Okay, so those who have the condition now, dialing down those who we can do surgery for, did that training. And now in surgery, how do we monitor to make sure that when they're removing that part of the brain that is damaged, we are not removing other parts of the brain that are useful so I did learn that as well and was in surgery to participate and help surgeon to do that. So fast forward, learning all those aspects to understand the condition, understand how the condition is diagnosed, managed, treated for those who have surgery and those who qualify to be treated medically. I just developed that knowledge and 
with friends like Lucian and a lot of other people, we started the nonprofit a long time ago, the Global Organization of Health Education, to bring this back. So it was just friends who, you know, we we work very hard three days a week or four days a week, and then we'll save our money and get our backpacks and travel somewhere to just preach preach the word of epilepsy is not contagious. That was that was our thing. Was that really like I I can imagine you just going back and having a few posters and saying gather around, let's talk about this. Yeah. yeah. Went to Cameroon in twenty seven. So started the organization in twenty fifteen. We did the first connection remotely. So just send an email to the African. I remember it was the African. Neuro neuroscience society. I just wanted to reach out to anyone in Africa who wanted to learn this. Hey, we are happy to teach you yeah. about epilepsy. And I remember it was an email I sent to a lot of doctors across the continent. And there was the first response came from Ethiopia. Hmm. I forgot the name of that physician, but I'll find it. He was a neurosurgeon from Harvard who finished his training and was working in Ethiopia as a neurosurgeon to help develop the neurosurgery of the country at the time. And he knew the need for epilepsy care and diagnostics because he couldn't, there's some patient that he would want to do surgery for, but you need to go through diagnosis, analysis, and then further diagnosis to decide if this patient are surgical cases. So he wanted to build that. He reached out, he's like, yes, let's do this in Ethiopia. And Fast forward, we had the first group of students there that went on and learned. Today, they're all certified doing EEGs and they move on. From there, we went to other countries, Nigeria. And I went to Cameroon to do a little conference actually in 2017. And it was an awareness campaign, right? With a friend who runs a nonprofit in Cameroon and we partnered. And we went with one of my good friends, Dr. Paul Seke who is a neuroscientist. He was a professor in, in the Middle East somewhere. So we, we went back home. We're like, hey, let's connect. Let's talk about this. And that's how it started growing. And then we formed the organization with Lucian as the managing director. We would think of, okay, how do we do awareness? And mostly it was just us, you know, our money. We, we get money here from friends. or And then we organized campaigns. And then we became very present on social media. And that was one of our biggest reach, just being on social media and posting about yeah. the condition. Yeah. That is so, honestly, that's so inspiring. Okay, we are going to take a pause here and end the first part of our two-part series with Tigo. If you want to learn more, make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.